This is Aliens and Artists, part three of our conversation with Robin Lassiter. I'm Stuart Davis. It's a trilogy, folks, a tri-fucking-fecta of star-speckled sensations. In this episode, the honeycomb structure as an artistic hyperstition, as an architectural aspect of craft, as a dimensional bridge between entities, also the reality behind the appearances, and the primordial lineage of something from nothing. Then on to sleep paralysis, stick a fork in its ass, it's done. How about our counterintuitive reactions to decisive anomalous events? Additionally, distinguishing depth from darkness. Drugs, alcohol, sex as trauma strategies. And what of the deep human future? Finally, so you want to be abducted. But first. So after we finished recording the last episode, I was kind of pestered during the night for several nights in a row. And finally, what I realized is that I had forgotten <laughs> that next to the experience that I had going into the Jaguar and going into the velvety blackness and approaching the gateway, which is one of two of the most hyper real experiences of my life. This other experience is the other one of those. And I forgot to say it. I think I got very wrapped up in how in love with earth I am. I'm like, I truly, it's kind of that uh, high school, you know, first love sort of feeling and I get really excited about it, but. First planet you crushed on really hard. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm still in, I'm still crushing really hard. So I'm still in that, that phase and I hope it never goes away. But it was a really important piece of all of this. And this experience happened in January of this year. So it happened after the bird incidents, after I had started writing my book, was getting into it not very far along. I remember it happened on January 11th. And I only know that because it was part of my numbers, the 111. You know, I had an experience that started the way that these days they start for me, which is usually in the early morning hours in bed and kind of coming up out of sleep and just laying there contemplating the day. And I feel the buzzing. I feel that sensation in my body. I'm really familiar with it now. And I know that what happens most of the time is that I leave my body. I have an out-of-body experience when that comes up. And even still, even though I've, I always come back, it's always scary. And so it was scary, but I decided to go with it instead of really fighting against it. Uh, Cause I had been doing after our conversations, um, just a lot, you know, like twice a day meditations, really connecting with, with my team, feeling really safe. That presence that had been kind of badgering me with this urgency had subsided, I think, cause I had started active communication. And so I felt safe enough to do this. So I decided to let this happen, the buzzing light, all of that. And I felt myself sort of rise up, which is what always happens. This time though, I looked, I could, my eyes were open, I think, or I could see at least down my body. And I looked down my body laying in bed and the blankets were tented up as if I had physically risen up about three feet and that's never happened before so I kind of noticed that and then I 
really quickly sort of shot up out of my body and I came right up against the ceiling of my bedroom and I could see it so closely that I could see like the texture on the ceiling and where the paint edge, you know, wasn't exactly perfect. Like I had a really close up view of that. And then I went through the roof way up into space. I just shot really, really high up. I stopped and I felt, you know, I was aware that they were above me and they, they sort of handed me down this line of buzzing light and vibration. I don't know exactly how to describe it except for that. It was a line had a beginning and an end. It was contained. It was a piece of information. Now I call it a technology. So they gave it to me. I had no idea what it was for. I took it. I came back down. And the next awareness that I had was that I was really struggling to open my eyes. I was blinking really slowly. Everything felt, it felt like I was coming out of the deepest sleep that my body just did not want to wake up and come out of it. So I finally, like with tons of effort, I sat up in my bed and I have these little lights that are on my bed and I clicked the light switch and they didn't come on. And I did it a couple of times and I was like, that's so weird. I guess the power must be out. And then I looked around and I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) I'm not, this is my bedroom. I'm on my bed everything's where it's supposed to be. You know, I have a body, but the room is filled with a gray mist. And it seems like everything in the room is made of a different density of this mist. So the walls were the dense mist and the air between the walls and the and me were less dense. And the whole structure of the walls in the room and the space was this honeycomb matrix. And so I could see hexagonal cells all linked together. And if I put my attention on them, I could see that they had information inside of them. There were like these codes inside of the cells. Some of them were totally full. Some were totally empty. Some had like little square pieces that seem to be some sort of information inside of them. And so I'm like looking around going, what's going on and where am I? And just kind of getting my bearings. And the wall in front of me that my bed faces was that gray mist. And it sort of went back and back and back. And from that gray mist come four beings. They walk out of the wall and into the room. They, I feel, are the same four beings that I call the four who are one, except for this time, they're not in a mass of light and sound together. They're separated and they are, I can't see their features or faces. I can only see their outlines because they are also the same gray mist, but they are as dense as the densest things in the room, like the bed and the walls and all of that. They come up to me, up, right up to the side of the bed. And I say, am I not in my body? And they are, they give me this feeling like they're kind of disappointed in me, you know, like this took a lot of effort. <laughs> like This wasn't easy to just kind of show up here. And I think they really hoped that I would have an intelligent question, but I was just like, I don't think I'm in my body. I don't think I'm supposed to be here. I need to get back in my body. And so what I feel like is that they did help me get back into normal reality 
But before they did, they gave me all of this information. And what they said was, this place is behind the scenes. This is what your reality hangs on. And this reality responds to where you put your attention and the quality of your attention. And so as I was looking around, the honeycomb cells would come into very crisp reality. As I looked at it, I could see all the information. And as I turned my head to look somewhere else, that would fade away. And the new place that I was looking would come into to crisp reality. And then that was it. The next moment of awareness I had, I sat back up in bed. It felt much easier this time. I reached over and clicked on my lights. They came on and, you know, I had to go to work that day. (laughs) It was so, so hyper real and so strange and wild. It was one of those events that caused a really big ontological shock to my system and it took me a while and now I'm still working with that you know that was January and I'm working with the information they gave me and I wanted to mention it specifically because I think part of the importance of that is through the manifestation culture and if you just keep your vibration high enough and all of those things that had damaged me when I was really rejecting my whole self I put aside this idea that we consciously can interact with and influence reality. And yet I know on some level that that's true, certainly. Like I could go into a bunch of real world examples of that, but I think a lot of people understand that. And so I think that it was really important for me to have that information because I'm not abandoning anything. Nothing gets left behind, but also there's this way to have agency and to work work with the energetic structure of this place where I can influence things, even in my own life, my own vitality and all of that. And so for the past 10 months or whatever, that's what I've been working on. So that's what I forgot to include and needed to be in there. I'm really glad you did include it. The honeycomb structure, which configured the environment, sounds akin to what Bob Lazar reported on a hatch inside a craft he'd worked on. The honeycomb structure in the hatch allowed for incredible strength ease of use, tug on one part, and the entire structure expanded in synchrony. Beyond that, knowing your affinity for bees, how they figure in your artwork preceding this event, are they related, and if so, how? Right, yeah, I've had exactly the same thought. I did grow up with bees, and I grew up really closely with them, so we would sit outside the hive and watch them come in, and I grew up knowing about the sort of perfection of the honeycomb structure. And I think that's really interesting about what Bob Lazar saw, because I do think it's a very important geometric shape and structure. And also, yeah, the idea that I have this lifelong thing with bees and pollinators in general, but bees in particular, it's one of those questions that makes this experience, these experiences and this phenomena so difficult because it's like, did it come first? And did they use that structure because they know that I have an understanding and affinity for it? Or have I had this lifelong affinity and interest for it? And because of some bigger meaning that it exists on its own and I'm attracted to these and to images and I paint them all the time as some sort of connection to that 
if that makes sense. It, it's one of those moments where you can't find a beginning or end to it, but it definitely seems linked. You touched on the way human agency can influence or shape reality, a perennial theme in esoterica, mysticism, the occult is the reality behind the appearances. In the experience you just shared, the entities themselves make reference to this reality behind the appearances. Much of experiencer life is an initiation into reality behind the appearances. When we cross the threshold into that deeper reality, we gain new understanding of how our will has the power to impact reality and sentient beings therein. Take the secret law of attraction as an example. Saying you can create reality according to personal preferences and treat it a little bit like a vending machine for your desires. If you want a shiny new bike or a sexy new girlfriend, you can sculpt reality to generate wish fulfillment. That's one mode of agency akin to some basic petitionary prayer for personal gain. The narcissistic end of the agency spectrum, let's say, contrast that with the bodhisattva's vow or any spiritual imperative that says, how can I best serve the liberation of all sentient beings? Knowing we have agency and that our influence can be unpredictably powerful sometimes, Robin, what do you feel is the highest or deepest role of our individual agency as experiencers when we enter into the reality behind the appearances? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It's a really, as per usual, just like massive question. <laughs> Give me these fantastic questions. I think for me, two things come up. One is this sense that what I'm experiencing in recent years of my life is that my agency has a lot to do with some really deep internal work. We do have an effect on the world. We have an effect on the people around us, on our environments, on our own physical like animal bodies. And I am safer for myself and for the rest of the world when I do the internal work so that I'm not living through an illusion of, lately I'm just calling it the illusion. You know, the illusion of lack or fear or the way that the kind of reactive places that we can live in where we're defending and attacking and being very guarded and boundaried. And I understand the need for that because trauma and the earth and it's everything that we're going through as a species, like it's scary and we often feel backed into corners. But what I'm discovering is through my own agency, needing to keep really good spiritual hygiene, needing to really take care of my own emotions, my own body, so that I can come from a place that is as clear as possible and has as much space as possible to hold all of my stuff, like not trying to manipulate it into being some sort of thing that it's not, but try to be as clear as possible and as free from the illusions of those things as possible so that the transmission of love can come through. The second part to that is the clearer that I become, the more integrated in myself that I become, there are things that emerge that are uniquely me that are less influenced by the external culture. Like the bees, like I painted 
blue horses for 10 years. All of these things that are uniquely me, my little markers that are just mine and all of them put together to make up this part of myself that is very closely linked to art and creativity. And I think every single human has it. And letting that individuality be as clear and expressive as it can be and as authentic as it can be without trying to bend it around the edges to make it more marketable or I don't have any problem with, you know, artists should make a ton of money. Like (laughs) we're this, you know, we're the soul of the collective of humanity, but putting all of that aside, just finding that pure, true, authentic, creative thing that is each of our particular lenses that we see the world and expressing that I think is a huge part of our agency and one of the highest expressions of manifestation because the world needs all of the different lenses through which reality sees. So does that answer it? Yes, right there is an undervalued, even undetected position artists hold in these riddles. We're not alone in the universe. What do we do about that? How do we best offer our individual agency to the collective cause? Art provides new perspectives, new ways of personing. I can't imagine a greater gift to our fellow sentient beings as they confront these vexing cosmic koans. I love your response. Yes. Yeah, I'm thinking as I'm saying that, like the words freak flag keep coming to my head. I grew up, my parents, again, back to the lander hippies. We knew other families who were kind of doing the same thing in that area, and they were all artists. It was like this alive counterculture. They painted rainbows on their work trucks. And my dad's a contractor, and we had other family friends that were contractors. And like there was a little bit of cement left over. They'd pour a little on the ground and put a handprint in it, or press a stone into it, or use leftover paint to put a mural on the wall. And even creating little stone and leaf and berry altars in the middle of a forest, those acts of creative expression, even if they're never seen, they hold a frequency and an energy that I feel is super important. I'm afraid a little of the homogenization of the overculture where those wildest edges aren't explored because they're not, you know, they may not fit into the whole in an easy way. And I just think they're really important. We talk about this all the time in art and experience or life. Our present social cultural conditions are upside down and inside out. This prevailing view that art should entertain us, make money, distract us, grant us relief from our own disowned shadow, that If it can't be commodified, it is merely navel-gazing indulgence by self-absorbed daydreamers. Nothing could be more vile or distorted. Everything we value or uphold as redeeming or exalted about humanity is derived of this creative lineage, the primordial lineage, the artistic lineage. All religion is derived of this lineage. All politics, philosophy, science. Every surprising miracle of ingenuity from Stone, Anvil, to Van Gogh's Starry Night, it all comes from the primordial lineage of creativity. Artists enact the oldest known sacred ritual, which is to evoke 
something from nothing. Everyone participates in this ritual moment to moment, but 99% of us do so passively. And artists are the 1%, the active agents in the ritual of something from nothing. And it's really the only reason humans are still here at all. It's really the only reason anything sublime exists. You said freak flag. The creative freak flag is the only reason humans have survived any of the bottlenecks we've gone through because creatives know how to pull something from nothing. We play the wild cards. Your life is such a beautiful exemplification of this. You coming forward with your story as an artist, as an experiencer, is a wonder. It helps us recognize and claim our place in that lineage. On the other side of this coin, how do you feel the non-human entities perceive or situate your artistry, your creativity in the dynamic of contact? I love that question. I've been thinking about this a lot and thinking about my own experience through all of this, of course. I guess what I would say is that they don't tell me that. <laughs> they haven't given me any answers around that. And I'm going to keep thinking on that and think back through my experiences and see if there's anything specifically that they have indicated or that I've experienced where it's clear to them that that's who we are and that that's important. But one reason that I love that question so much is because my direct experience of understanding the deep importance of creativity and humanity came through me coming to terms with the fact that we are not the only species of our kind. So we're not the only, I put animals into the, they are also a non-human intelligence, but beyond that, these other beings that are coming here, that are coming from other planets or other dimensions that seem really interested in earth, just coming to terms with the fact that like, we're not alone. We are a species. We have specific characteristics and qualities. It was only by coming to terms with the fact that we are in relation to others that it let me look back on us from that perspective and see who we really are. It's that idea of you can't see the water that you're swimming in. I couldn't see us clearly until I saw us from a distance and in relation to other species. And when that happened, that moment where I was driving and I got hit with what humanity is, with, with us as creative beings, everything that you just talked about, that was the moment that I understood us in a way that I never had because the overculture that devalues art, that says it's only worthy if it can make a dollar or if it can have mass appeal or if it, it as entertainment and all the things that you mentioned, that culture, it also tells us that we're very broken. It tells us that there's a, an ideal that we can reach through our physical bodies, our emotional self. It tells us that there's a normal and that we just need to kind of get our shit together and be that. And when I was coming out of the period, the darkest night that I've gone through in New Mexico and then in Hawaii and coming out of that, I kind of bought into that. I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that the things that really like activated me and made me feel vital and alive were the things that I feel are uniquely human, which is creativity. And it's 
not homogenizing with the rest of the culture. It's that uniqueness and that creativity. So, and in terms of how I think they see us, for a, a long time, I wasn't even sure that they had any sort of emotional resonance. I've gone through things where they didn't really seem to care how terrifying it was for me or how uncomfortable or how shocking or how long it would take me to get my bearings again after it happened. And that still is kind of the case, to be honest. Like they're still asking things of me that I have to move through time and integrate it. And it's not always comfortable. I don't know if they in particular have a sense of who we are in that way, but I will say that creativity is the direct result of my interaction with them. And now, as I say that, I keep like leaving my book out of my creative side for some reason, because I've always been a visual artist, but they did tell me to write a book. (laughs) I guess I forgot about that part. Like specifically, that was the directive, write a book. And I don't know if they saw it as, I don't know. I have no idea how they saw it, but it, it was the creative act that turned me more into myself than I've ever been. So have you asked them, do you want to ask them? I should ask them. Yeah. I think I will ask them. To be honest, this relationship, this lifelong relationship has only recently turned into a true relationship that, in my mind, involved some consent. So, because before it just was all happening to me and I went along with it. And then, as I said, I've started to claim my own autonomy and sovereignty. And so I forget that I can ask them questions. I even forget that I can put boundaries on our interactions and say like, Hey, I need to sleep. (laughs) You again, Stuart, like you helped me with that to realize that I could do that, but it's not my, not my default yet in any way. I forget that I can ask them things. In reference to the onset of some anomalous experiences you've had, you've mentioned the looming dread that death or something worse than death is coming. What might be worse than death. What do you feel is the basement in the building of that phrase, so to speak? Oh, the basement. The first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, at least death is somewhat a little bit known. We know things die. We at least have that, even though I think personally and collectively, we keep death at an arm's distance and we're really, really afraid of it, but we understand it's a thing. And I guess the thing worse than death is the thing I can't even conceive of. Like whatever is beyond that event horizon, these experiences themselves were so outside of quote unquote normal day-to-day reality that I, there was zero context for what could possibly be happening. And the thing worse than death, but related to death is the vast unknown, just the huge gaping hole of the unknown. And the fact that my physical body was having such a fear response gave me no reason to believe that this would be a good place (laughs) that we were going. Although, you know, clearly like my experiences are mixed with magic and goodness and astounding, wonderful things. And there's a lot that I wouldn't trade, but also it's, it's just this vast unknown place. It's stepping across that event horizon into something that is absolutely without question, completely unpredictable. 
which links with something in part one. You discussed going to a boundary where you knew that beyond that edge lay the domain of the human soul after death. Is there an intersection between human life after death and the realms frequented by some non-human entities? If yes, is that common domain evolving? How might it be evolving? Does that make sense as a question? It does make sense as a question, which in itself is just weird. Like, how do I even have an opinion on such a huge question? But as you're asking the question, I, I have put that into a structure where at least it has some boundaries and some qualities so that I can make sense of it because I have to have that structure because I've, I've had all the, all of these experiences and I have no idea if this is, of course, I don't have a view into the other side of those things, but the way that I've put them together for myself is that my sense and perception is that we are not the only species with souls. Have a sense that the place where humans typically go through the after-death experience and reincarnation and choosing to come back to this wheel of evolution, which has been about suffering. I feel like that's a system and that human souls are familiar with that system. And I also think that other beings have souls and that they likely have a different system. And then I think that there's a overlap of interdimensionality. This is really... <laughs> I feel like I'll say this because I, they did answer that question for me in a certain way. When I was asking them, is it okay? I know I made this contract to come here to, you know, to this planet and I typically incarnate on this other planet. And even the fact that I was given that information as in I incarnate, my, my soul typically incarnates on this planet over here, but now I'm going to come to earth this time tells me that I have a soul that's beyond either of these physical realms. And when I asked them if it was okay, if I renegotiated that contract and came here, you know, decided to be part of this earth-based soul system and be on the planet and go through this process. And what I mean and meant by that was not just this lifetime, but like, I'm signing up for the long haul here. I want to be part of this now. I, I like it. <laughs> I asked them actually from a sense of loyalty. I was like, is it, am I bailing on family that I'm not aware of or on connections that are important for me not to let go of? And they, they were pretty clear about it. They were like, it, it's all pretty much the same. So you can, you know, you're not leaving anyone behind if you choose to go to this other place. There's still contact. And then in terms of the question about evolution, I see it as this like massive ripples of reflection that spread out in every direction. And the fact that we know that our soul's evolution exists here on this planet, and I kind of have an idea for me personally what that's looked like, of going through these dark nights into the underworld, coming back out. I don't know why that wouldn't be happening on, in other realms. And I don't know why I would choose to incarnate on that planet if even if evolution can just be termed as growth or as more awareness, more space, or even a clearing out of illusion, 
to get closer to something. My sense is that also exists. But I I'm aware that this is the story that I've put in place to be able to have my own agency because otherwise it's just forever unanswerable questions. I'm excited to ask you about sleep paralysis. At this point, it's such an albatross around the neck of experiencers or maybe a vestigial organ from previous much less informed generations. Sleep paralysis in the conventional medical sense occurs during transition to or from sleep. One cannot speak or move. There's breathlessness, visual, tactile, olfactory and auditory hallucinations, heightened emotions, fear, chest pressure, usually lasting under a couple minutes. For decades, this has been trotted out as a catch-all, dismissal for abduction. Anytime an abductee reports that paralysis or immobility was one component within a suite of phenomena, typically recurring phenomena. What I'm interested in asking you about is how contact experiences are distinct from sleep paralysis. I was thinking about this, and I don't believe I've ever worked with anyone who is an abductee or a contactee whose experiences are contained to merely transitioning in and out of sleep, which is to say if abduction were attributable to sleep paralysis, we wouldn't find people seeking help who report an aggregation of experiences that are fundamentally disrupting their life. The experiencers I've known are worried about jeopardizing their careers, their standing in society. They have scoop mark scars, triangle markings, red grid marks, missing time, compressed time, multiple sightings of craft, waking state, sober interactions with non-human entities, inexplicable reproductive issues, and coping strategies that are unconnected to known causes, including stuff like hypervigilance that's wildly disproportionate to their life circumstances, inexplicable aversions to sleep, or symbols, or geographic areas, or visceral reactions to animals employed in screen memories. But the dead giveaway in my book is certainly that sleep paralysis does not cause ontological shock. Good God, totally different (laughs) territories. This is obvious to anyone who's taken more than a cursory glance at these phenomena. The idea that sleep paralysis accounts for abductions is inane at best and egregiously hurtful at worst when debunkers say that since humans are paralyzed during some portions of some contact events with non-humans, then all contact events must be sleep paralysis. It's adolescent. To your experiences, you mentioned the building, the room, shook, the walls, the bed rattled so violently you thought there had been an earthquake and went to check how big that earthquake was. So Robin, please relate for us what it is about the totality of your experiences that clearly sets them apart from something as one-dimensional as sleep paralysis. Mm. 
I'm just absorbing everything that you said. It's, it's um, so good. <laughs> so when these experiences, particularly around the time that the spheres started to visit and the shaking and also, you know, I had, I heard voices in the room and my only real reference point from any of that, for any of that was sort of Western materialism, right? So Western science. And so when I looked, when I researched things, these are the things that came up. Sleep paralysis came up. Oh, you know, and I actually, in my book, I, I talk about this because, because it gave the people in my life, the couple people that I told about this, it gave them an easy answer. They're like, oh, that's just, you know, you're just having this. And so I read the definition of what sleep paralysis is and I compared it to my experience. And then I read all of these other, every culture around the world, like this is a phenomenon that happens and they don't have a sort of reductionist, solely physical explanation for it. A lot of cultures leave this in the realm of the unknown and the realm of true interaction with something else, even if they don't know what it is or they put it into different contexts. And that really helped me because when I read the definition, the medical definition of sleep paralysis, it was like, that's fine. That's a, okay, cool. That's, that's a thing. I understand that. And then an event would happen to me and that definition would be shredded. It would just be eaten by the thing that was climbing on my bed. You know, it wasn't, it didn't account for that. So, but at the same time, I had no other reference point for it. It was the only thing that I could find that was even close to what I was experiencing. And so that's why I still call it that because I honestly wasn't aware that it had been used as a way to write these things off. Because for me, even though there's a Western medical definition for it, it did not change the hyper-reality, the terror, the totality, the things that weren't in that official definition of sleep paralysis. They don't talk about the fact that a being shows up and I follow them and go out into the world None of that was mentioned, <laughs> but it was the only thing that I had to touch on. And until I had the big experience of approaching the gateway and the next day I talked to my dad and he was reading the book about cave art and the origins of it. And the author was postulating that these events that happened to humans were perhaps the origin of art. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, because I, this reductionist sort of neat and contained definition of what's happening does not fit my experience, but this does. This fits my experience. This wild, shocking, huge event that shakes me and rattles me. And I, I make different choices about my life based on that made more sense to me. So I hope that that answers your question. I, I latched onto that word because I could not find anything else that came close to it but it is yeah the experience itself is so much bigger than that completely makes sense it's powerful how you worked your way through the epistemological and ontological territories where they fit where they did not fit 
because it also doesn't make sense to pretend that there's no common denominator. It's like the experiencer reports, I was conveyed by something. It had a wheel. A single elevated column rose up vertically from that wheel. It was made of metal. And then debunkers say, well, a wheel and, a, and metal that had to be a car. Cars have wheels and are made of metal. <laughs> and the experiencer says, no, I actually know what cars are. And this had one wheel, a single metal column, and on top there was a seat, and the wheel had pedals. But the debunker's worldview does not include the category unicycles. So they come back <laughs> with, it wasn't a car, okay, it must have been a motorcycle. Yes, you must have misinterpreted a motorcycle. The experiencer says, no, I know what a motorcycle is. <laughs> this was a unicycle. Well. This is akin to telling experiencers that they don't know the difference between sleep paralysis and non-human entities that take them to a second location for invasive procedures. They do, in fact, know the difference. Listen to what they are telling you. The incapacity to listen to experiencers is really hindering human progress in these realms. I want to ask you about strong, counterintuitive responses to extraordinary events. In your case, the most extraordinary experience of your life occurs and you just go back to sleep. We hear this over and over from experiencers. It's a broad intergenerational pattern at this point. At these moments in which we'd expect extreme reactions, we find the inverse. People go back to sleep when they'd normally be screaming or running from the building. They forget about seminal events for a decade or more until happenstance triggers their recollection. Experiencers don't talk about events that normally would be all a person would want to talk about. In your life, how much has this counterintuitive response to exotic events been a factor? Well, in that case, certainly. The, yeah, the improbability of me laying my head back down on the pillow, but also how instantaneously I was asleep. Um, that's not common for me. Like, I don't get in bed and put my head on the pillow and go to sleep in any way. And so this massive event happens. I immediately, I do kind of come out of it with a, with a gasp and I sit up and, you know, there is that adrenaline for a moment and then down on the pillow, instantly asleep. And then that profound message from them. So I think that there may be two things happening. One of them being that, you know, the interaction itself, and if the interaction is orchestrated by these other beings, that they're implementing something that causes that response, the kind of lack of fear or the forget about it, or have just completely forget it until something triggers it, and then it all comes rushing back. Like that may be an aspect of the phenomenon that's intentional on their part maybe to ease the trauma, I don't know. But the other side of that coin is that it is often trauma. And that experience in particular, when I laid right back down and then had the message from them, that felt orchestrated by them. Other instances felt like a self-protective mechanism 
where my body said, no, thank you. Like, we're not, don't know how to integrate this. And it is a trauma response. So that actually, like your point to how difficult it is for the world to take these things seriously. Like, I find it frustrating. I find it personally frustrating, you know, and until I found you and the experiencer group where I can be in a place where I don't have to have a 30 minute conversation explaining how these things could be real or that I, I know the difference between a dream and I, I know what it feels like to be drunk or not. And that's not what this was. Like, I don't have to have all these qualifications beforehand, but until then, you know, trying to tell people about these things and them not being able to hear me or understand, I kind of have some compassion for because if they were able to believe as deeply as I do because I don't have a choice because it happened to me and it was real I mean it's rearranged my whole life and there's all of this trauma around it and shock and the idea that reality isn't what we think it is and there's all these other things like that's it's one of those little death moments where something has to change foundationally and we are terrified of death i think that that's one of the like roots of all of this is accepting death accepting that transformations that happen where we can't see across the event horizon exist and perhaps ultimately they might be safe or at least evolutionary in some way could help us with all of this but i think collectively we're a long way away because we're terrified of death so that's my big thought about that (laughs) i couldn't agree more that our fear of death sabotages the invitation on offer here from us to ourselves And also from non-human entities to us, we have canonized the fear of death into a miasma of immortality projects. People want to trap the ego in amber, not just the ego, but one particular stage of the ego. I would, (laughs) I would like a perpetual version of Stuart's personality at the age of 50, transposed into eternity. Holy shit. Shadow schemes. Death and birth, extinction and emergence have been in perfect rapport for about 14 billion years now as a fundamental cosmic dyad, but some humans aspire to eliminate half of that simple equation. And what's perplexing about that drive is that it presumes the universe is broken, so we're going to fix it. In fixing it, We break it and disinherit ourselves from this great cosmic mystery, including non-human entities. But I get it. The personality is such a recent, fragile arrival on the cosmic scene. Of course, it doesn't want to relinquish its tenuous hold on what it imagines mistakenly that it has obtained. Power. Control. Let's springboard to substances and addiction as coping mechanisms for the personality in experiencers' lives. It occurs to me that there is a parallel between your dharma, your spiritual imperative to help the planet 
shift from evolution through suffering to evolution through joy and creativity. There is a parallel between that and the myth, which is particularly strong among artists, that we must suffer for our craft, our evolution. The romantic notion that dark equals deep. What has been your own experience distinguishing depth from darkness? How do we best help those who might be conflating the two? Oh, gosh, that is, that is like the core for me of the elixir and the gem that I received from the depths. I categorize for myself suffering into two categories. One of them has to do with the fragility of life that absolutely exists in terms of what we were just talking about with death and how what I believe stems ultimately from a disconnection with our planet, with our natural world, with, with the rhythms and cycles that exist here as part of the whole. And we've cut off like spring and summer are great, but fall and winter no, we say no to that. We don't want the decline and the death. We forget that there's spring coming. Like we're disconnected from those cycles. And they do, those cycles include suffering. Those cycles include loss as part of the whole. And so there is a fragility and a, an aspect of loss and pain that exists as part of the natural order of this planet that's plenty like <laughs> that's that's so much suffering and and so much to face and so much to move through and so much sacredness like there's a lot already there but we're disconnected from that and so the other kind of suffering at one point i heard something that basically said the natural order is to move through this cycle and how long it takes just depends on how uncomfortable you want to be i can resist change i still like active in my life right now there are changes that that i'm being called to and i feel the potential for rebirth on the other side that i am like resisting because it's scary because i am much more connected to those natural cycles than i was or had been but there's still that uncertainty there but the more that i surrender to those natural cycles, the more that I let go of like the clinging and the attachment and the fear, the more that I'm learning to trust life and that that flow of life herself, which I equate with the planet, I think another word for it is the goddess, like the mother figure, the great mother, that flow of life that wants to come through. If I allow that, it's a much more graceful journey. The more that I resist and fight, the more that I need to, to buffer myself from that disconnection from life. And so that's where it was not conscious. It happened for me so early and so young. So it wasn't like I chose. It wasn't like, here's the kind of suffering that's aligned with the natural rhythms of the planet. But here's this other thing. Here's all the, all the fear, all the armoring, all the, the blame, the guilt, the shame, the unsafety. And I can buffer that with substances and I'm going to choose that. Like, of course it wasn't conscious, but that's what I did. And I am really good at getting stuck and inertia sets in. And I have to make a huge effort to break out of those things a lot at a time. But drugs and alcohol made that easier 
I could stay in inertia for longer. It worked as a coping mechanism until it didn't work anymore. So I think I lost the core of your question, but the suffering for the art, that's what I'll try to bring it back to. So there's enough richness and fuel for creativity as just part of our natural cycles that we're going to lose people we love, that our bodies are going to change and decay ultimately. And that just the natural change that happens, there's enough there. Having to suffer for your art is something else. And I don't have any judgment towards that. I understand it really, really, really well. I sank down into those depths of alcohol and drug abuse and abusing myself. There was like a numbing victimhood, helpless comfort that was at the core of that, where I didn't have to exercise any of my agency because all of this was just happening to me. And this is how I dealt with it. And I created, honest to God, some pretty good art during that time. So it's not without its benefit, but ultimately it's like, how uncomfortable do I have to be? Because the life that's flowing through everything also contains all of the potential for incredible creativity. Yeah, I like this as an extension of distinguishing between depth and darkness. I love that you brought up there are upsides to substances because there are. A lot of the downsides are obvious. The classic confusions that come with alcohol, drugs, sex as coping mechanisms, the mistaken notions that intensity equals intimacy, that drama equals movement, that numbness equals security. The perforation of protective fields, the puncturing of boundaries produced by alcohol and drugs is a well-known liability. We know, of course, rendering one's self inert is not a super... <laughs> solid approach to self-protection, but what is more nuanced are scenarios such as taking ayahuasca or other entheogens expressly for the purpose of engaging other realms, other entities. What do you feel the risks and rewards to be around this manifold menu of psychedelic options that seekers have on offer these days? Oh, I, uh, Sometimes I wish that I had done more of that before I got sober, because for me right now, it's, it's, you know, it's part of my sobriety. And so I don't do that. But I, the first time I did mushrooms, it blew open my reality in a completely new way. I understood something that I didn't understand before that. And it was beneficial. It's a really big question for me because, you know, I, I have, either access or imposed upon me these other realms. The veil is relatively thin. I can visit them somewhat easily, but I know that that's not how it is for everyone. And going on a journey with a plant as a guide, the essence of the plant medicine, taking you on a journey, which certainly can cause a very similar ontological shock, which can then result in a very similar necessity of evolution or broadening of perspective in order to now hold this new thing that exists that didn't exist before in your reality. Like there's absolute benefit to that. There was benefit to 
the darkness combined with the alcohol was very destructive. And I know that I blew holes in my field and it was a dangerous thing for me to mix darkness and alcohol in that way. But there were times when alcohol had its benefits for sure. There were times when smoking felt that way. And even working with the spirit of the tobacco before it became abusive, like there were times when it was powerful and opened me. I think intentionality has a lot to do with it, especially if someone is exploring plant medicine with intentionality, with needing a new view of the world. I did hallucinogens a handful of times. And I think for all but one of them, I was also really drunk. (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't very spiritually productive for me to do that. So I, I think intention matters. And I think that what's happening now is great, which is that there's also the integration piece where there are guides to help people integrate these experiences afterwards. I think just like the shock that comes from the experiences I've had in these other realms can be really devastating if you don't have the tools or you can't ever kind of meaning make from it. I'm positive the same thing happens or has the potential to happen in the realms of the drugs that can open up our perceptions to what I believe is also real reality that we just don't see on a day-to-day basis. Another element making this path so fascinating is that we're not playing poker by ourselves. (laughs) We have our hand. Entheogens are one of the cards we hold. But there are other entities playing poker as well. Take Michael Garfield's account, which is shared here on Aliens and Artists, in which he and a group of others did ayahuasca, I believe it was, and all eight or nine of them experienced large mantid entities as part of their journey. Now, I would venture to say that the mantid entities they encountered were not on ayahuasca. <laughs> I bet they were just there. I've encountered a mantid being when I had a fever. I would venture that mantid being did not have a fever. It was just there. They arrive in meditative, mystical states, out of body, remote viewing. This is the part of contact poker that ups the ante. We are not interacting with metaphors. They aren't just archetypes. It's also not as plain and concrete as dropping off a package at the post office. So I'm curious how this part of the equation informs your sobriety. Considering how these entities have access to and facility with our non-ordinary states, considering this is not merely metaphorical theater, How does that inform how you might counsel other journeyers or seekers? For me personally, and I know that it's not clearly not the same for everybody else, but for me, I, you know, all of a large part of my life, all of these experiences blended together with my own confusion of the multiplicity of myself. So there wasn't a strong orienting center. And looking back on that feels dangerous to me in my body these days. It's not that I need to lock down a tight control. Like I still choose to interact with the beings who interact with me and 
they want me to use the technology that they gave me and I'm I'm going through that at my own pace and but now I'm taking my body into account so whereas before I pretty easily would abandon my body to any of those states including you know the out of body experiences the contact that I've had I never had a sense of something that I really needed to protect necessarily other than just like a big fear response and being self-protected like survival mode protective in that way but now I have this sense of my physical animal body that is my charge to protect so I don't move into these realms without the permission of my body even if I'm having an experience and you know there's always fear that comes up and now I check in like is it too much fear am I okay with this is my body okay with this and then I will continue forward until I had the discernment about all of these different states of reality and my own agency in them I didn't have any of that protection so I guess I would say my current take on all of this is that the foundation of any of my practices and experiences is my body. I feel like there's a reflection there that relates to the earth. What is safe for the earth of my body? And that's how I make the decisions to do this. I hope that answered the question. I feel like the fact that entities, yeah, in these other states can contact us so easily, I had to find my identity and my central governing perspective somewhere so that I could interact in these realms as an equal almost. And for me, that has been incredibly important. So glad to have you sharing this. Hard to overstate how important these considerations are in respect to the idea that entity encounters mediated by entheogens or fevers or meditative absorption are merely some epiphenomena, that may be a backwards assumption. A non-ordinary human state may be an ordinary non-human state. But by putting ourselves on their radar, an opportunity perhaps is arising for this mutuality. So I loved your response, and it leads to another example I want to ask you about. People who wish they could be abducted. This is a thing. There is a population of people who wish to be abducted. They understand it's real, and they'd like to call it in, like an Uber. Of course, grokking that we're not alone will elicit such fantasies in some. But those who are years or decades into these enigmas more generally understand that one really has no fucking clue what one is asking for with such cavalier wishes. So as a corollary to the previous question, how would you counsel someone who wishes to be abducted? If you ask me the question, what do I think the impulse is behind that? It's a very different question than what I would say to someone specifically who is asking me that. Yeah, it's hard to overstate how shattering these experiences are and the meaning making that i've done around it is that ultimately 
it pushed me into, you know, an ability to hold more inside my field, which is a positive thing. But as I've said before, there's nothing inside of me that will skip over the trauma of it and be like, oh yeah, you go through the hard thing, but then afterwards you get, no, like it continues to be hard for me. I still have moments where I'm like, all right, you just need to, to buck up around this. I was on, I was like on a walk and I was thinking about that, like, I don't know, Instagram t-shirt or whatever that says no bad days. And I was just like, that's, I'm not, <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to be there. Like this, these experiences require me to have hours and hours of my life when I am just keeping my body safe. It has rearranged the entire structure of my world in every way. And that's a really big trade-off. Maybe I could have had a life without all of these experiences and done some great meaning making and been helpful to the world. Like, did I need this trauma? Uh, you know, it's a really big question. So to just really directly answer the question, if someone asked me that, I would give them the tools that I now have, which are meditation, banishing practices, holding the body as, as the foundation. And, you know, if someone really wants the experience or if somebody is having contact experiences, but they can't tell if they're safe or not, that's where I would start is establish boundaries, come at it consciously and intentionally, and don't give up your sovereignty. I do want to say why I think that people are seeking that experience, which is once again goes back to the natural rhythm of our experience as souls and personalities and beings on this planet, which is that change fosters evolution. And we all see how disconnected the world is from those natural rhythms. And I do think that there's this soul yearning to break away from the illusion and come into more direct interaction with ourselves. And so when we want part of us to die, which is like what addiction was for me too, part of me wanted to be annihilated. That's what those terrible relationships were. I was asking for transformation. I was begging for it. I just didn't have the tools or the language. So I understand why people want it on that level, but I don't trade off my ultimate safety and sovereignty anymore. Profound. Doubly so after these past few centuries, divesting ourselves of interiority, disowning enchantment, estranging the mysterious, making ourselves ill with mere materialism. Many experiences are living the koan, how do I become healthy in a sick culture? The impulse of wanting to be abducted is one example. What it means to be abducted is debatable, but it is meaningful. And we will take meaningful annihilation over meaningless immortality. I love your deeply considered approach to that meaning. And from here, it's not too sharp of a turn into spiritual bypass. Anticipating asking you about spiritual bypass, I was reminded of something Adi Da supposedly said to his attendants, <laughs> which went something like, I only have two directives. 
First, tell me the truth. Second, never give me bad news. <laughs> Classic spiritual bypass, a great human tradition, not wanting the burden of realizing our innate divinity. Well, here's a messiah, or here's an intermediary to dodge the burden of taking care of our own liberation. Don't want to face your own depravity or your own divinity? Here's someone to project it onto. Inveterate aversion to the great below or the great above. And we see bypass in the human-non-human dynamic. That we should just colonize Mars instead of healing Earth or that aliens will rapture up humans before the apocalypse hits full scale. What do you feel are some good antidotes to bypass? I think that for me, what it's come down to is working to create the container of myself that can hold the multiplicity. And I think that the ontological shock has contributed to that. All of these things have contributed to that. The other thing, I'm just going to follow sort of the thoughts that are coming up. I think one reason why I spent so long trying to spiritually bypass my shadow primarily was that collectively we're so uncomfortable with it. Collectively we're told that we shouldn't ever have a difficult emotion or the thing like, what do you have to be unhappy about? Like, look at all of the abundance in your life. So then you, you're depressed, but then you also feel like an asshole, you know? So it's, you're not allowed to look at that. You're not allowed to go there. Just think happy thoughts, like just focus on the positive. Um, I think that ultimately what helped brought me to a point where I was no longer allowed to do that in any way, shape, or form was that I tried all the doors. You know, I tested everything. There was nowhere else to go except for to look at the reality of things, which is really funny because we're talking about realms that the word reality is tricky because there's a multiplicity there as well. But just being able to face the truth of experience that in itself shattered the bypassing because it became a part of the whole. And so how it relates to giving away our personal responsibility so that somebody else will take care of it, somebody else is coming to save us. Not only is it ineffective and kind of dangerous, it was dangerous for me. It also gives up half of our birthright. It gives up half of the richness, half of the perfect systems that are underlying everything here. So I don't think I have any big answers around it, except for that I can't orient that way anymore. And every time I can feel myself desiring to, it feels so bad in my body that I have to just come back and be with whatever is there. And in the act of turning towards whatever is there, the fear and the bigness of the thing I'm afraid to face kind of magically dissolves anyway. So I also think it's a trauma response, spiritual bypassing, because I think it's rough being on this planet. I hope that answered it. I don't feel like I have good answers around that except for my own personal experience. I feel like you bypassed the question. Did I? Damn it. <laughs> <laughs>
(laughs) (laughs) Joking, I kid. I want to stay with the theme of what's difficult to integrate. How do we manage the slippery parts of our lives as experiencers? One thing that struck me from our previous conversations is how the mood modulated when Lemuria came up. This also came up in Kirsten Blackburn's episodes and others. There are people who are fully out of the closet as experiencers, contactees, abductees, and they still cringe when starseed comes up. They bridle at the prospect of saying, I'm a starseed. I incarnated here expressly for the purpose of cross-pollinating sentient beings in this time of crisis on Earth. And when Lemuria came up, I wondered if your reaction was less a self-conscious feeling of embarrassment and perhaps if there was something deeper under that, perhaps a sense of loss, a forlorn sadness, which is a bigger part of the allergy than mere embarrassment. Are they equal or blended? What do you feel is behind the reluctance to own the phrase, I am a starseed, or I had a past life in Lemuria? There's so much we say yes to. Yes to reincarnation, we say yes to life throughout the universe, but it's hard for many of us to say yes to, I am a starseed, or I have galactic origins, I'm here to help. What do you think is truly, deeply behind that aversion? That is a great question because you are right. Like, what is that? What is my, I've had, I've had a couple of experiences where I just, you know, in the regression, I, my, I just could not get close to it. And it wasn't as if the other information was any less shocking or outside of the realm. You know, I, I know through more work that I've done that my interaction in Lemuria, my incarnation there, I was there for a cataclysmic event. And mm, that's such an interesting point. So I know that a lot of my resistance to kind of stepping into my dharma is not only tremendous grief, but also tremendous fear that that I will fail and that the stakes are really high, I think. I am kind of processing and working through this real time as, as you've asked me this question. But I do know that part of my story is a tremendous amount of grief and the information that I got in the work that I've done around this is that it was my first major shock as a soul was that event. And just like the ontological shock of the things that I've been through with these experiences, just like they have taken a lifetime of integration and meaning making. And I feel like that, that experience set me on a soul journey and the incalculable, inexpressible amount of grief from that event still seems to resonate through me. I also think 
that it's very unsafe culturally to talk about any of this stuff. That's part of it. I, it, it also still took me a while to, it didn't take me as long, but it took me a while to speak about incarnating from another place and this narrative that has been my life. But the Lemurian stuff in particular, I do associate with tremendous grief and tremendous fear that I will fail or even directly contribute to some cataclysmic event through negligence. So that was real, like, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever formulated any of those thoughts before. So very, like, raw reaction to your question. Powerful. And something I think many experiencers will recognize and relate to. We have such a persistent collective amnesia. We don't even understand the pyramids or Gobekli Tepe, gargantuan relics in plain sight that are beyond our purview, much less the truly hidden history of humanity's deep past. We have amnesia, but our origins remain present in their active influence as well. I want to ask you about how the deep past colors your sense of our deep future. If Lemuria was 15 or 20,000 years ago, yet nonetheless it continues to cause feelings so intense they are difficult to speak of, given that, when you look ahead 10 or 15,000 years, what's your intuition on our long-term prognosis, our deep human future? Oh, that's a ginormous question, Stuart. So, one other thing that they said to me, when I kind of asked in a emotional moment, why am I here if there's no hope? Because I've had hopeless moments, you know, I think many of us have. And they said that collectively humanity hasn't chosen yet. We haven't chosen which path we're going to take. And they showed me the paths and it made perfect sense to me. One of them is a technological future that embraces our disconnection from uh, nature, from the natural cycles of the planet, that disconnects ourselves from the messy parts of being humans, the emotions that we don't want to feel, the things about ourselves that we cut off and cut away and aren't okay. And that path relates to the myths that we're telling ourselves collectively through the places that myth come from nowadays, which is our movies and sci-fi and things like that. And the story that we're telling is, is that we go into this technological future and the machines take over and destroy humanity. But we plant a little seed in those myths as well, which is that they can't really destroy us because they don't have our best parts, which really are the complexity, this multitude that is humanity. They showed me that that was one branch. And the other branch is a remembering of who we are, who we are as a species, what humanity is in terms of our creativity, reclaiming that original blueprint. And that doesn't mean that there's not technology. You know, I don't even see that that necessarily has to involve another near extinction level event. I think that it's possible to blend the best parts of technology and 
humanity in its best form and create something that takes the whole of ourselves and the earth into consideration. And um, I think that that's another path that we could take. There seems to be a cyclical inhale and exhale that we do. (laughs) And in terms of these big passages of time, I don't know. I don't know if there's another event that unravels us or if we're able to choose a different timeline. That's how I see the future is in potential timelines. What I will say, and I have, of course, no idea if there's any higher truth to this, but my personal experience is that I, you know, the Armageddon dreams stopped at some point. Not to say that we're not on the brink of a huge potential of suffering coming down the pike, but that simplistic either or we're going to blow ourselves up or we're not, or that certainty of that timeline to me feels like it's shifted, that there are more possibilities now. I don't know. It's a really big question. As I feel out further, as you were saying, that 15,000 years out, the timelines diverge into such a multiplicity that I couldn't even guess. I hope that we've reclaimed ourselves and reclaimed our place among our galactic family and that we have agency in that and that we get to create and express as the beautiful, amazing species connected to this planet that we are. But I'm sure that (laughs) no matter what happens, it's going to be a bumpy ride one way or the other. Fascinating to consider the set of known eventualities such as a massive solar flare or a meteor impact, interstellar rays, super volcanoes, continental plate drift, which are all part of a natural planetary life cycle. But then there is this set of unknowns, nukes, insect collapse, ocean collapse, climate change, in any and all of these eventualities, a deeply developed human soul has an inordinately disproportionate impact. We should fly our goddamn starseed flags, our freak flags. Artists, bodhisattvas, dakinis, old local elementals, we are the living wild cards in this cosmic poker. Agreed, agreed. I don't know, Stuart, sometimes you lay it on me and it takes me a minute to integrate it and let it move through me because it's incredibly beautiful. And I don't know, man, there is definitely something going on and I have to, when I get a little heightened in my body and I can feel that truth and I'm a little shaken by it, what I think of is the experiencer group and you and my own experiences throughout life and the clarity that is arising around what's really important and how that is in some ways harder and in a lot of ways a lot simpler. There's the sense of mission that I've had my entire life. It's much easier to deal with that if I can see a few steps ahead and at least know what I need to focus my energy on. And there's still some grief that comes with that, but ultimately, man, just a big, giant, soul-level yes to everything that you just said. 
For more information on Robin Lassiter, check the show notes. If you anything at all, or not, then especially, are you ideal becoming a patron or pluser? We only ever the things you savor with stringent adherence to how. Because the earnest why, that's a front page reason. Sit here, allow our endearment to ingurgitate. Mm. Receptive, buddy buddy. It's patron property. It's plusser plaything. Thumbs, podcast knobs. Holy for you, honorific guest. Holy for you, honorific guest. That's true. Honorific guest. Thank you to come to our aliens and artists and invite you to cherish to take good care of the aliens and artists hygiene facilities, such as towel resulting in by you damaged. Foul stuff will from your personal and responsible for indemnification, moreover invite your right. Defend the mattress that fall down if the immodesty fall down, the guest complacent. Please treasure resources, water and power conservation. Thank you for your again. Please bang joint in presentation jottings. Consider that joint bang. Patrons and pluses, consider that joint bang. Stuart Davis, UFO. Can we talk about the Stuart Davis painting UFO? Not the Stuart Davis you hear speaking these words. Stuart Davis the dead painter. Our names are spelled the same, but we art quite differently. Stuart Davis the painter. I mean, let's stop right there. I'm a fucking painter too. So, Stuart Davis the painter who preceded me in birth was a modernist, even abstract painter on a good day. I'll confess I've never really been able to get into his work, probably because of its qualities. I'm sure the feeling would have been mutual had he lived long enough for me to kick his ass. Aside from Stuart Davis, I really do love some abstract art, like Kandinsky, Klee, Klein, Off Clint, The Case. I'm in a K-hole of covetous fervor when those K-painters cake it on their k-k-k-canvas, spelled with a K. Hilma Off Clint was featured here on Aliens and Artists in a previous episode, Internet It, and she is truly fascinating both for her avant-garde work and its ties to non-human intercessors. Stuart Davis the Dead One, on the other hand, has never sparked my heart. So I was buoyed by surprise when I learned that he had painted UFO in 1932. I never imagined its composition would contain any particularly furtive symbolism, but I wondered if its origin story might contain some little-known anomalous event. Maybe this Stuart Davis prototype was an experiencer, like the real, actual Stuart Davis. I mean, remember a few episodes back when I set out to have a cursory glance at the Foo Fighters concert poster, featuring the mantis entity and ended up down a rabbit hole that included a widespread power outage along the eastern seaboard, with well-documented UFO sightings over numerous power stations and telepathic messages conveyed from the UFOs to Oscar-nominated actor Stuart 
Whitman? That's three fucking stewards lined up like dominoes. That's the kind of thing I was hoping to build upon when I dove into my namesake's Abjadar, the tantalizingly titled UFO. Nope. Nobody nope. There's no indication the lesser Stuart Davis ever saw a UFO or that Davis Minor had so much as a passing interest in the phenom. And the painting in question, UFO, I mean, what am I looking at? For starters, subordinate Davis splattered his name across the work, like Tommy fucking Hilfiger or some shit. This vulgar Davis is yelling at our eyeballs with his ostentatious appellation. Calm down, Mr. Forget-My-Name-a-phobe. We get it. It's a Stuart Davis painting. He fucking tacked his own canvas like an L train. As for the rest of the painting, there's a black rectangle, which is outdone by a red rectangle, which is bested by a white rectangle, and a squiggly green line apparently scrawled by a geriatric robot. Fuck you, F.O. Stuart Davis. Sotheby's says UFO should sell for a few hundred thousand dollars. I've seen better UFOs in the National Enquirer. I shouldn't, but I'll link to this charlatan's charade in the show notes. To book one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, click the link in the show notes. Sessions focus on non-ordinary experience, mystical practices, and creativity as a spiritual lineage. Doped up in the goddamn drama, groping for the golden dharma.
says we 